Secretary of State says fellow Republicans are pushing him to exclude legally cast votes. As Secretary of State, I believe that the numbers that we have presented today are correct. It's incredibly important that we have a seamless transition. Hi, I'm Jim Saxa, and this is The Transition, a special edition of Political Theater. It is Friday, November 20th. It's been more than two weeks since the election, and the results are unambiguously clear. Joe Biden won. But President Donald Trump refuses to move on, and many of his supporters are still standing by his side. The rest of us, however, are looking ahead, and that's what we'll discuss on today's show with a trio of CQ's top-notch reporters. We'll talk to Jessica Werman about Joe Biden's plans to fix just about all of America's problems with an infrastructure bill and what will probably derail them. And we'll look at how Biden's election is playing out across the pond with CQ's foreign policy reporter, Rachel Oswald. But first, Niels Lesniewski will get us up to speed on this year's bumpy transfer of power. We've asked CQ's chief correspondent, Niels Lesniewski, to catch us up on the latest transition team drama. Niels, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So you covered a briefing Biden held earlier today, uh, and diversity was a big topic. What's going on there? Well, the the Biden team was questioned uh, by reporters about uh, the practice of hiring for senior administration roles And more generally, there have been concerns from some on the left uh, in particular about there being too many people with potential corporate ties. Uh, That is certainly uh, true uh, so far with, well, you know, lots of people when they're out of government end up working for major corporations, right? So when you have a a Republican majority in and the White House in in D.C., you'll end up with more Democrats who are in uh, business and advocacy roles. And and that's sort of what we're um, seeing, the the tension within the the Biden operation and uh, and the progressive community uh, concerned about the presence of uh, people in the cabinet and elsewhere who have uh, lots of business ties. Yeah, so the progressives want to blacklist the ex-corporate lobbyist types, but uh, there, there's a pushback from the black and Hispanic uh, community, right? That they want, they are saying, if I'm not mistaken, that you know a lot of them go into this work, and if the Biden administration is supposed to reflect the diversity of America, you can't say no to people that have that sort of work experience. That's right. The the argument too is that what exactly, you know, if you're if you're looking at a more diverse uh contingent of people for jobs, both uh racially and demographically, uh there are certainly uh scenarios where the people who when they are not working in government end up going to work and quote unquote cashing out. Sometimes the cashing out is just to make it, just to make some money. If you if you're dealing with people who are, you know, sort of independently wealthy when they come into working for government, then they don't have to go off necessarily to the same sort of uh, business jobs, lobbying jobs, uh, corporate positions. Uh, but if you've got a more diverse candidate pool, more often 
probably than otherwise, they can't necessarily afford to live on the kind of uh, salary that the government pays all the time. You know, you've got student loan debts and and family expenses and whatnot. And so the argument would be, if you want a more diverse pool of applicants, you actually need to have more uh, willingness to hire people who have worked in the corporate world. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out and whether or not this is one of the early uh, um, left-the-middle fights that we're going to see in this administration. But speaking of this administration, the last administration still has not actually conceded, and the GSA hasn't signed off on the transition yet. But let's just assume that that actually does happen, and that's a big assumption. The White House is currently a COVID hotspot, right? And Joe Biden is way too old to risk catching it. So has there been any talk about, I don't know, a transition via Zoom or Biden running a you know virtual White House for the first couple months? You know, I think there's going to be more talk about that going forward. The question came up on today's uh, press briefing that the Biden transition did, and it was noted, you know, that the briefing was being conducted virtually. You know, we're the White House press briefings. There was one of those today, too. And and Kayleigh McEnany uh, and a group of reporters were all gathered in what is a relatively confined space that is the White House press briefing room. As opposed to what we then did immediately thereafter, I wasn't at the White House today, but I was on a Zoom call uh, that had like a hundred and something participants probably uh, that was being conducted by the the Biden transition. And and we can communicate virtually. I mean, we're just to go behind the curtain of this podcast for a minute. We're literally on Zoom at the moment recording this podcast. Uh, so people know how to do that. And, and one of the things that once the transition actually is formally allowed to happen, uh, that I'm sure they're going to be talking to the GSA about in its sort of other line of work, is how to reconfigure parts of the West Wing, parts of the Eisenhower office building, and other parts of the White House complex uh, to be able to spread people out and minimize the footprint. There are some jobs that, of course, you know, require people to be physically present in order to have access to uh, secure facilities, SCIFs, classified information. Uh, but quite frankly, I think there's a lot that goes on in the White House that isn't actually classified. There's a lot that goes on in the White House that isn't actually even probably sensitive. There's a lot of routine business that probably could be done more remotely than is being done currently by the Trump administration. And I would expect the Biden administration will do more remotely uh, when it's feasible. We're, we're talking about conceding earlier. And we, we've started to see some Republicans conceding to the reality that Joe Biden has won. And they've been asking Trump to do the same. Mitt Romney was the harshest. He said on Twitter, uh, quote, it is difficult to imagine a worse, more undemocratic action by a sitting American president. But he wasn't alone. Ben Sass and Lamar Alexander both also called out the president. So my, my question is, is the party finally turning on Trump here, or are these guys just the outliers? They're, they're still the outliers uh, at this point. Uh, there was a, a report today uh, from... Uh, 
a long ago former roll call reporter, uh, Jen Bendry, uh, I noticed shared that there have actually been more Republican senators who have tested positive for COVID-19 than have acknowledged that Joe Biden won the election. <laughs> so uh, there is still a ways to go in terms of how Republicans are handling this. I think that given the Thanksgiving holiday that's coming up next week, the real question mark is going to be, well, there's two. One is, uh, do they get the funding deal done to keep the government open shortly after uh, Thanksgiving? Uh, and certainly, once the state certifications are more uh, full, once we get more states sending in the official paperwork, uh, does this sort of blow over at that point? Or do we have a situation, and this is probably the scary situation, the scary situation is when they argue, when you start, if you were to start hearing Republican lawmakers argue that they aren't going to accept electors from states that, Do that uh, Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani still say they won. So next week we're facing a... Uh yeah, the risk of a government shutdown, uh, a constitutional crisis. Man, uh, you really know how to end Friday on a high note there, Niels. But uh, that, that's all the time we have uh, for today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. With us is Rachel Oswald, CQ's foreign policy reporter. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. So you've been looking at how our European allies are reacting to Biden's win. You say they are relieved, but they're still looking at us a bit leery-eyed. Why is that? Well, we're coming off now uh, successive presidents that have taken U.S. relations in Europe, um, if not explicitly in a diff different direction, um, different direction because of tone and approach. You had the George W. Bush administration, which demanded, um, you know, NATO support for the harebrained, you know, invasion of Iraq that history has now viewed as, you know, um, not well thought out. After Bush, you had uh, President Obama, who, while returned to a policy broadly supportive of multilateralism and internationalism, he nonetheless um, consistently pressured NATO countries to increase their defense spending, um, explored um, reducing the U.S. troop presence in Europe um, with the intent of, you know, pivoting away to Asia, looking at the Asia-Pacific as, as, as the rising concern for American national security. Um, and then after that, you had four years of name-calling and accusations by President Trump. Even though he did not withdraw the United States from NATO, he reportedly threatened to do so, and what's possibly even uh, more noteworthy is he called into question for the first time in the alliance's history, really, whether the United States would honor Article 5, which is the undergirding principle of the alliance, you know, principle of collective collective defense. So that's just that's just a roller coaster ride for European countries who had been counting on the United States since the end of World War II to kind of be the leader of the liberal international world that it largely constructed um, to its liking. And they just don't know where things stand right now. Yes, Joe Biden is a well-known player in the international community, given his years on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, including time as chairman, and then as a very active foreign policy vice president under President Obama. So they know who Biden is. They know he is completely committed to NATO. But they also know that Biden could be followed 
um, in four years by possibly President Trump if he decides to run for re-election and wins, or a Trump-inspired successor. So they just don't know how long they can count on the U.S. You're describing, you know, the seesawing going back and forth. Is that how it? Isn't that how it's always been, or is it? Was it different? Uh, you know, back in the Cold War era. Well, it was definitely different during the Cold War era. Back then, you did have. Uh, a more or less unified Republican-Democratic consensus that the Soviet Union was the number one threat, and we needed to have a unified foreign policy um, in response to that threat, and and that the way to defend the United States was to defend Europe. You know, that the USSR would first try to undermine and possibly attack Europe and then leave the in that and then come for the United States. So so things were more or less steady during the decades of the Cold War, even as you had very strong domestic um, differences between the two parties. But it's also worth noting that traditionally, if you look back at the centuries of US US history, we have been an isolationist country. Um, And we, you know, we took our time joining both World War One and World War Two. So it's it's a question now, and all these years after the end of World War Two, and all these decades after the end of the Cold War, if we're not reverting back to a norm of isolationism in our in our foreign policy, isolationism has always been very. There has always been a strain of isolationism in our foreign policy thinking. Uh, the traumatic events of the 20th century, World War II, and the Cold War, the nuclear arms race, kind of put that on the back burner. And there's a question now if if those feelings are not returning and aren't aren't are going to have staying power. Rachel, thanks for joining. Yeah, glad to be here. Jessica Warman covers transportation for CQ, and she's been reporting on Biden's plans for a big infrastructure spending bill this coming Congress. Jessica, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So if I understand it right, Joe Biden wants to use this one big spending bill to jumpstart the post-COVID economy. Mm-hmm. Fight climate change, yep. resurrect organized labor from its moribund status. You got it. And and he wants the Republicans to go along with all this. Is that going to happen? Yeah, it sounds easy enough, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, past presidents have looked at infrastructure as sort of a matter of okay, these ri- these bridges and these roads are super old and they're crumbling, and it you know it eases commerce to be able to get. S- stuff from point A to point B. Um, but Joe Biden is sort of looking at this as a way to sort of hit several goals. Like your tax dollar is going to go in several directions when you pay for that new bridge. He has climate change threaded through every part of this, meaning you know any sort of infrastructure plan would, for example, build um, electric vehicle charging stations or electricity, the electrical grid would become less reliant on carbon. Uh, Transit would be, you know, zero emission buses. So he wants to sort of do the same thing, but he wants it to, he wants it to go a little bit further. And it is super, super ambitious. And I think kind of the, 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 the rubbing point are two things here that, you know, the, the issue is, is he if if Republicans take the Senate again? Is there any chance that they're going to go along with this stuff? And then the second part is that like the age old, you know, problem with infrastructure, which is how do you pay for it? Because you know these things aren't cheap. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me we've been talking uh, in D.C. about infrastructure and a big spending bill for you know well over twenty years now, and and it hasn't happened. And and 
this would be adding on a, another dimension to make it slightly even more anathema to certain Republicans. So what's what's Biden's way forward here, or Democrats' way forward? Well, I think it's a matter of scope. You know, there's the achievable, and then there's a big, you know, top-line goal, ambitious, you know. The top-line goal is we're getting rid of transportation as being the top carbon emissions producer. That's a little bit difficult. Probably more achievable would be something like an infrastructure bill that would create resilient infrastructure. That's like that's something that Democrats and Republicans can agree on. Uh, and when I say resilient infrastructure, I say I think like roads that can withstand flooding. You know, I mean, this is something that Republicans are on board with. They're they're practical about this matter, and this is something that you saw in the Republican highway bill that passed EPW in 2019. Like they are kind of on board, well, they're very much on board with the idea of resilient infrastructure. It's sort of scope in terms of, you know, how big can you possibly go? With a Republican Senate, again, it's a little bit more difficult, but there is such an appetite. You know, this is like what education used to be in the 1980s and 1990s. Everyone loves it. This is a thing that everyone loves. Everyone loves the idea of it, but, um, you know, obviously, there's here's my cliche, the devil is in the details. And it'll be really interesting to see where those details really uh, come out to be the the devilish horns that that this <laughs> gets stuck on. Go my, uh, cliche I'm on just going to keep going. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you did mention uh, how to pay for it. Is there a pay for in the the proposal that we we can expect? The current highway bill and how we fund infrastructure right now is basically through the gas tax, the federal gas tax. So when you pull up to the gas station and you fill her up, you're paying a little bit of a tax that goes to the highway trust fund. That does not get the job done. The highway trust fund does not cover the cost of infrastructure. So we've got about $140 billion that we have transferred over from the general revenue fund to help kind of offset this. Yeah, And we've also got, I mean, we've got cars that don't really need gas like they used to. We have increasingly fuel efficient cars. We have, um, we have a pandemic that's keeping people off the road. So these things do not exactly cause a dump of cash in the highway trust fund. And this gas tax, I have to say, has not been raised since 1993. So I don't know how old you were in 1993, but it's been a minute. Um, and nobody really wants to raise the gas tax. So what you can actually probably count on is deficit spending in the short term, kind of like the stimulus bill that the, um, the CARES Act that was passed in March, where you sort of say, we're going to spend this money and it's going to help the economy. It's going to get this out of the, the crisis we've, we're in. And when they do that, they're also sort of arguing that we're rejuvenating the economy in the wake of the COVID pandemic. And we're building this infrastructure. So again, you get two for the price of one. Yeah, I think there are a lot of economists that agree with that, but probably many more Republicans who will uh, remember their anti-debt and deficit uh ethos uh, once Joe Biden's in office. Uh, Jessica, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Please tune in again on Monday. For all of us in the CQ Roll Call newsroom, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.